First and foremost, I want everybody to take a deep breath and relax, okay? I feel like my eyes sticking to one side of my brain and shit. You know what I mean? Go to bed, Okay, my name is Taylor Dunn. Y'all keep it going. You are now listening to the Mac Daddy Seminar, motherfucker. <laughs> What's cracking, pimps? What's going on? And welcome to episode 37 of the Mac Daddy Seminar. As always, I am your host, Taylor Dunn. And as you can tell, we got a little bit different with the intro music. I hope y'all are liking it because I worked really hard on it. Um, So let's just go ahead and kick things off. We are continuing with the Wetumpka High School quarantined reunion. Now, if you're unfamiliar with it, basically what it is is I reconnect with an old classmate of mine and I just ask them how they're doing. Everybody's in the house right now, so it's a perfect time to reconnect with people if you haven't talked to them in a couple of years. And I'm using that opportunity and putting it on the podcast for all of you to listen to. My guest today was a good friend of mine back in the day, and he has since then moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where he is pursuing a career as a country music manager. Okay, He manages artists such as Clay Baker, or Barker, sorry, Clay Barker, as well as Justin Holt. My guest today is none other than Mitch Wallace. Sweet. What's up, man? Thank you for having me. Yep, no problem. Going. All right, so you know the whole spiel with the whole quarantine reunion thing. So I know that me and you didn't graduate the same year. I graduated two years after you in 2012. So you graduated in 2010. So tell me, you graduated high school. What happened after that? All right, where to begin? Uh, Barely graduated high school. Um, In 2010, after that, I stayed I had a job in high school my senior year at a sporting goods store in Montgomery um, so I stayed there worked there for a semester spoke to them you know told them I was saving up to move to Auburn um, so I made some good money saved up some money and moved up there um, in December after graduation so I moved to Auburn went to the community college there Southern Union uh, moved up there with Doug and Charlton um, lived right next door to Will Smith and um, another guy, Ethan. Uh, he went to Edgewood, um, so he's probably not as known. But went up there, man, and I started a clothing company, uh, Mintish, and basically just partied, partied every every week. Like, uh, you know, the clothing company was was kicking off, going going good. I was doing a bunch of concerts with a rap artist. I got in with a guy that was a promoter. So we were, uh, you know, quote unquote, sponsoring these uh, shows. So I got to meet a lot of famous people. I thought I was the shit. Um, You know, I was like 18. I thought I was super cool doing the clothing company. Uh, Failed out of every class I took. Um, The only class I made a good grade in was uh, history. I made A's in those because I enjoyed it. The rest of them were F's. Uh, so my grandparents are who I lived with. Um, they were like, you got to move back, man. You're, you know, you're fucking off. 
you got to come home. We're not paying for it anymore. Um, blah, blah, blah. So ended up moving back to Montgomery. Uh, kept the clothing company. Um, thought, you know, I was young. I didn't think it was a problem. I just blamed everything but the truth. So went back and worked at the other sporting goods store in Montgomery, our, our like rival store. Um, easy to get a job because they knew I had the experience. Uh, became like a retail manager there. Um, kept doing the clothing company, kept doing the shows. Um, started uh, just like, man, I was just really like crashing. I didn't have like a plan. I was still trying to live the dream. I thought that this clothing company was going to be something that my life would be. Um, kind of grew up. Uh, finally got a job at Hyundai out there in Montgomery. And I worked there for three months. Um, the worst experience of my life. You know, working from 4 a.m. to 4 in the afternoon, four days a week. It was terrible. Um, my grandfather passed away from cancer while I was working there. So I quit to take care of him. And, and I realized real quick, like, I need to get it together because I can't do work like this. I can't do manual labor. That's not who I am. Like, I am lazy at the core. Like, this is not me. So I was like, let's go back to college and let's do this thing the right way. You know, I had a big, uh, my, my grandfather was like my father, big person dying in my life. So I really stepped up, got together, went back to Auburn, um, went back to Southern Union, crushed it, finally uh, got into Auburn um, for marketing and uh, graduated from Auburn. It took me like five years in college after that. So I just ended up graduating last year. Um, so that's pretty much what happened, man, for the short term, you know? Yeah. I got a whole fucking timeline going, but. Yeah. I mean, that's okay, man. We're going to hang on one second. My daughter just walked into the room. What is it? Okay. Well, go tell mama, okay? Sorry about that. She's been sticking her head that's in fine. here. I have a puppy. <laughs> I will. I wish she was easy as uh, dealing with a puppy. Sometimes, I've never had a puppy yeah, walk in and ask to. Yeah, <laughs> she needs one just about. <laughs> She's like, "Hey, uh, I need to watch Wreck It Ralph," and I'm like, "Okay, go tell your mama." But, uh, but yeah, man, um, I've been keeping up with you over the past couple of years, and a lot of that I didn't know. I'm sorry to hear about your grandfather, man. I knew that you were primarily you were raised by your grandparents, correct? Yeah, I was adopted at twelve. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I, I know. I've heard you talk about your grandmother a lot, but I didn't know that about your grandfather. I, I'm sorry about that, man. Oh, it's all good, man. It's part of life. Yeah, it is. But uh, so I meant to tell you, um, somebody actually, one of the only people that asked a real question uh, <laughs> before the episode, uh, I, I sent out a thing on Instagram asking, you know, if anybody had questions for either you or me for the episode. And one of the main ones was from Paul Duncan who is a avid supporter of this podcast, he asked, uh, you know, what happened to Mintish? Because I remember back before, you know, when you first started it, it seemed like that shit was booming. Everybody was trying to get a shirt. And when we saw that, you know, you were getting on board with different music artists and stuff like that, it just seemed like it took, it just caught fire in, 
you know, Montgomery and Wetumpka and the surrounding areas. So, you know, kind of give a little bit of background on that. Um, I guess to start, um, my passion has always been marketing. And the biggest part of marketing is making things look better than they are. So let's start with that. You know, like, let's get that realization that what most people saw was what I wanted them to see. Like, just to the point. Um, Mintish did do great, man. I had an idea for a clothing company. I wanted to call a heat wave when I was 16, 17, maybe. Chad Norman's a guy I grew up with. Um, since we were four years old, we play every sport together, uh, knew each other our whole lives. We ran into each other at a party my senior year of high school. He had an idea for a clothing company. We started talking and we decided to combine. Um, nobody else has done this. Let's do it together and really kind of like use our two friend groups to, to push it. So we did that. We came up with Mintish um, just for fun. Like, seriously, we just wanted to like express ourselves as creatives without we didn't know how else to like I wanted people to know that I was more than just a regular kid um and so that's how we expressed ourselves uh it did go good me and Chad had a really good like business relationship uh he's super he's super creative um and I was really good at the business side and marketing and things so we really um went well together um I told you the little story of my timeline after high school. So that kind of gives you an idea of what happened to Mintish. Yeah. Um, I kind of decided to get serious. Um, Chad was, was ready to go different ways. Um, we started to see different views on what we wanted to do next. Um, and so he basically was like backing out. He was like, I'm kind of done. Um, and I was like, you know, it, I'm done too. Like, let's just stop. Um, right now we're, we sold out every release we did. We sold out the same day. Um, I remember my mom was like, nobody's going to buy a t-shirt for $20. Um, and I said, all right, I have a release at midnight tonight. And I woke up the next day and showed her my PayPal. And I was like, I sold out, you know, by 3 AM. So, (laughs) you know, you know, it went really well. It was super cool, super fun. Um, but it was time to grow up, man. And, I I really don't know what else to say. Stop while you're ahead. Um, Grow up. You know, the things I wanted to do with my life, like get serious in school, I knew they couldn't happen while I was doing what I was doing. Um, And I knew what I was doing was what was making the brand what it was. Um, So we just decided to stop. Instead of like dragging a dead, you know, a dead dog, you just stop. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened to Mintish. Honestly, you know, we just decided let's not. It's time it. to move to bigger and better things. Yep, and just leave it. You know, it was fun. It served its purpose. It let people know that we were creatives, and you know, we had entrepreneur minds, um, and that's really all we wanted. And to have fun, we had fun, a yeah. lot of fun. Like we made absolutely no money. Like every, I remember we we'd sell out and we'd make. I don't know, $700 profit and we'd go to the bar that weekend. And if you had on anything mintish or I remembered you buying something, I'm buying your drinks all night. Like we would go to the bar and just blow $600. Like me and Chad would just 
if you if you like minted, mentioned mentish, we bought your shit. Or we'd go to the parties with handles a crown and just be like, here, everybody that bought a shirt, like so that, I think that fed into, you know, the success as well. Um that we weren't money hungry. We really just wanted to have fun and you were gonna get a return if you supported us by alcohol, unfortunately. I know we were underage, so um Hey, that <laughs> that's how it is, man. And ever since I started doing these little interviews, pretty much everybody has, you know, a similar story where at some point there was almost like a turning point where they had to grow up essentially. And I know I've kind of, you know, told the same story over and over again, but it was about, for me, I was about 20 when it happened. Cause when I got out of high school at 18, I was just like, I'm just going to be a stand up comedian, you know, like, you go from high school and everybody telling you, Oh, you're funny. Like you can do this. You're going to be on comedy central. Cause at the time Netflix really wasn't booming with the comedy specials yet. Right. And everybody's like, Oh, you're going to be famous. And when people are telling you that, you know, you can pretty much believe it. Well, I just assumed, okay, I'm going to go here and get on stage and somebody's going to see me and I'm going to be, you know, flying around the world in a year's time. And obviously it didn't happen like that. Yeah. So, um, I did my first couple of open mics when I was 18, right out of high school. And I did a lot better than I should have. And of course my ego, my head grew nine sizes during that summer between, uh, graduating senior year and, you know, the fall, which I started school, I was going to Huntington in Montgomery. And I just, I didn't click well with anybody there. It's a Christian school, and I was a commuter. I didn't live on campus, so just about everybody there uh, either lived in the uh, dorms or they lived, like, right down the street in some, like, yeah, really nice house. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, when I would tell people, like, well, you know, I, I got to work this weekend, they would just look at me like, you got to do what? Or I'd tell them, you know, it was interesting when you tell them, yeah, I do stand-up comedy. You know, that was interesting to a lot of people. But for the most part, I just didn't click with anybody. And I just really lost interest in school. Like, it was just like a thing where I was like, oh, I got to go do this. And I just, I really, it was just a means to an end. The entire time I was doing it, it was just like, I'm just going to do this until my stand-up takes off. Right. But the problem was I wasn't doing stand-up nearly the amount that I would need to do in order to see some type of return on it. So, you know, I was kind of just playing myself. I was, you know, partying a bunch, smoking weed, hanging out with the same people in Wetumpka who, you know, I, I, you know, it was fun, you know, and I was going up to Auburn on the weekends and stuff too, going to Sky Bar, getting in with a fake ID and stuff like that. And, you know, it was fun, but in reality, I was just kind of staying in the same place. Yeah. So you get stagnant easy. Oh yeah. So that's why when I hit about 20, I really started to feel it myself. I was like, you know, I got, I got to do something different. This isn't what I want to do. I'm never going to be able to not just grow as a comedian, but grow as a human being. So that's when I started looking into joining the military and, um, I really kind of just put the whole comedy thing like in a shoebox. Like yeah. I didn't really think about doing it again. I, you know, I'd married my girlfriend and 
it just wasn't something really that I even thought about doing again. And it wasn't until I had come back from my first deployment that I thought about getting back into it. Cause you know, now I'm financially stable and you know, I can actually pay all my bills. Like I don't have to worry about all the outside stressors of life that would keep me from being creative. And I started doing it in Mississippi and uh, just here and there, wherever I could. And then it really started to, you know, get to where, okay, this is what I want to try and do again, even while being in the military. And, uh, you know, that's what really influenced me to pick these orders to come out to San Diego. Yeah, that's a good idea. And it's, I mean, it's been good so far ever since I, uh, I mean, I know I've covered a lot of time really quick, but since I got here in September, I think I've had the opportunity to get on stage somewhere between 40 and 45 times, which that completely blows all of the stuff that I did prior to moving out here out of the water. Just the sheer opportunity is exponential compared to what's available in the South. Like in Alabama, there are like two comedy clubs, right? There's one in Birmingham. That's the one that I started at. And then there's one in Huntsville that just opened up a couple of years ago. Yeah. We played a show at that one in Huntsville. It was odd, but who was it that, who was the show that you played? It was like a 65 South show. One Mm -hmm. of our um, sponsors, I guess you'd call them. Um, They had like a writers on there. Um, It was a really cool place. Um, They had a lot of famous people on the wall and stuff, but. So I have questions about stand-up. Okay. Who was like, who was your support at first? Like you said, when you were like 18 or 19, you did a couple shows. Did you have the big enough balls to go and do that yourself? Or did you have somebody that was like, you know, like your shoulder to lean on? That was kind of like, you got this when you doubt yourself. Or did you just have huge balls? Like what, what was that process? So, that. so I'm curious about that. So originally, um, I started thinking, you know, something entertainment based when I was in high school, you know, my mama always told me growing up, like he, he's goofy as can be. He wants to be the next Jim Carrey. And I remember Jim Carrey being one of my like main influences when I was a kid, but I, I don't know. I just, I didn't even look at like, this is something I could like make a living from yet. I don't know. I wanted to do something where, you know, obviously you get attention for it. You know, it sounds kind of grimy to talk about it that way, but it is what it is. And, uh, you know, I looked at sports and I've never really been the athletic type. I tried my hand at different sports and I just never really could find one that I was decent at. But I always felt like I, you know, could say something or joke around and I could make people laugh. So when I was in high school, um, I got into theater. I was like, oh, I'm going to try and be an actor. So I guess the next step is to, you know, go and do this theater class with Jeff Glass. And I got in it and I was really nervous because I was taking it way too seriously. And I was kind of shy and I was nervous. And, you know, a lot of the upperclassmen Um, you know, they were kind of allotted the opportunities to act in bigger parts and stuff like that for the plays. And which kind of looks bad on me because I never was in any of the plays in high school. 
I always, because right. I had a job, I would have to tell them like, hey, I, I work pretty much six, seven days a week. I'm not able to, you know, I'm not able to be there for the plays. But um, it wasn't until we went to a theater competition and I couldn't find a scene to do. So I just wrote my own and I showed it to him and, you know, he thought it was fantastic. He was like, none of my students ever write their own scene. And I was like, well, this is what I got. And I took it up there and I ended up winning first place at regionals. And we went on to the state competition and I didn't, unfortunately I didn't win at state. Sweet. But And so then that's when it kind of dawned on me that I was like, well, maybe, you know, writing something funny and standing in front of people and performing it is what I need to do. And then it was just right then it like dawned on me. I was like, maybe I should just try stand up comedy. So I continued with theater and all of that. And the whole time, you know, it's starting to kind of dawn on me, like maybe this is something that I could actually do. Cause like even, you know, coach Mataloni at coach's corner, I remember him telling me, he was like, you need to be a comedian. And I was like, that's actually kind of what I want to do. So during, right after I graduated high school, I started researching, you know, places that I can go do an open mic, which I didn't want to go do a bar or anything like that. I wanted to be in an actual comedy club. And I didn't, I really, the only people I told about it were my friends, but I knew none of them would come. I just told them, you know, like, I'm going to be doing stand-up sometime soon. And I sat down in my room, and I just I wrote everything out, and I watched a bunch of comedy specials and stuff like that and tried to figure out what I was going to say for just this little five minutes. And I didn't let my mom hear it. I didn't let my girl – sorry, my neighbors are over there wrestling or some shit. Uh, I didn't let my mom hear it. I didn't let my girlfriend hear it. Nothing. And I just, I bought them their tickets and I was like, Hey, it's going to be on June 27th. And I think I put it on Facebook and they came out and of course they were, I think they were more nervous than I was because they were like, you know, are you, do you know what you're going to say? And I'm like, yeah, I know what I'm going to say. And they're like, how come you haven't like rehearsed your stuff in front of us? And I was like, I want you to be surprised. I want you to get a show out of it just like everybody else. Yeah. And Lo and behold, while my, you know, I got my mom set up in there, I got my girlfriend set up in there and, you know, I'm walking back and forth to the back, going in the green room with the other comics. And, you know, I'm 10 years younger than everybody else on the bill. Everybody else is 30, 35. Some of them are even in their forties. They've been doing it for years. Right. And uh, they're like, is this your first time? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I go out, I have to go to the bathroom and I remember looking up to the front and my dad is up there and I hadn't seen my dad in like eight years. Like the last time I saw him, it was through the glass at a, a prison in like Northern Alabama. I forget the name of it, but he had his new wife with him. And I didn't say anything to him. It kind of wigged me out a little bit. And I came in and I, went back to the green room and I stayed back there. And then I think I was like midway. I think I was like midway through the bill, which is a decent spot to be in, 
which I could break all that down. It would take me hours, but depending on where you're at in the lineup, will kind of decide how well you're going to do right. because it doesn't, the room has to have a little bit of time, like for the energy to build, like whoever goes first, that's a really tough spot to be in because you right. go from just sitting there to, okay, now this guy's going to be funny. There's no like warm up leading them up. So I was uh midway in the bill and, you know, I was nervous, but I just went out there and did it. And, uh, it went really well. Like I completely, I did really, really, really well for my first time. And I just didn't, I really didn't have anything to base it off of. I didn't know really what I was doing, but it was essentially the same thing that I was doing in that theater class. Like I would just write something funny and I would be like, how can I make this a little bit funnier? And that was adding my punchlines. And then I just went out there and did it. And I ended up, it was a competition based show and I ended up beating 15 other people my very first time on stage. Nice. And after that, I was just hooked. I did a couple of other like little small shows uh, around Birmingham. I did one at a bar for my second time ever being on stage and they had to move all of the audio equipment outside because I was too young to come into the bar huh. to perform. And I didn't do so hot that night, but it is what it is. And uh, third time getting on stage, um, I hosted the same open mic competition. They let me host. So I had to come up with little jokes to say in between introducing each comedian. And this was my third time ever doing stand up. And uh, believe it or not, that was actually one of the last nights that I saw Gil. Right after that show, I went into Montgomery and he had come back from school. And I went and hung out with him and Chris and Jared and all of them. They had all come back into town. And that was like one of the last times I hung out with him. And then, uh, you know, unfortunately, we all know what happened shortly after that. Right. And uh, that, that one was really difficult. That was probably, that was like the first time somebody that close to me had passed away. Of course, I'd had family members and stuff pass away. But, you know, I felt like I had, you know, really gotten to know him as a friend just over the past year. And uh, for that to happen so unexpectedly, that, you know, I mean, it pretty much shook the whole you know, city to its core. Everybody knew him and, you know, it was just a really tough time for a lot of folks. Right. And, uh, you know, I had, when I won that first competition, it set me up for a showcase on the big stage. So everybody that had, you know, done well in the open mics, everybody that had won their open mics, they made them all come together once a year for a showcase. So they make everybody that had won the previous ones all face off in the end and they do it on the main stage. And, you know, it's in this huge room up there. I think it seats like 400 people. Dang. And, you know, I was gearing up for it and all this. And, you know, I was kind of, you know, using the situation that happened with Gil, I was kind of, you know, using that to push myself because, you know, I had told him about it and I had invited him to it. And I was like, yeah, this is coming up in like a month, man. Like you got to be there. He's like, I'm going to make it, man. I'm going to make sure I go. And I invited everybody I knew. And, um, you know, we, uh, 
we went up there and to the show and I just remember walking out in that big main room at the Stardome in Birmingham. And I was like, holy shit, this is a big room. Cause the first time I did stand up, I was in a room that only sat maybe like 35, 40 people. Yeah. Well, this one seats 400 and it's on a huge stage and the big bright lights in there. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> and, um, I just remember I was nervous as a cat and I'd gone out to smoke a cigarette like four or five times. My mom was there. My grandmother was there. My girlfriend was there. My girlfriend actually, she's my wife now, but she filmed the whole thing. And, uh, Gil's uh, sister and her boyfriend at the time, they came and I think it was a bunch of people that came out. And, um, I just remember when I walked out there, I was so nervous to walk out in front of that many people, but I, I don't know what it was. It was something about like just the way my first joke went and I got such a big reaction. It was like the anxiety just washed away and I just went off. Yeah. And I just remember it felt like when I was standing on that stage, it felt like I was just staring into like a black hole because the lights are so bright in your face, you can't see anybody out in the audience. So yeah. I just felt like I was just doing it for nobody. It felt like I was doing it in my living room and I just felt relaxed and I just put my all into it and I ended up finishing third place. And, you know, it was great. I was on cloud nine with it and the biggest mistake I made where I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to take a break until after Christmas. And I didn't do stand up again for four years after that. Dang. So, uh, coach glass, <clears throat> Jeff glass, I guess. Yep. Um, awesome class. Awesome guy. You know, he was the wrestling coach. Um, I wrestled my whole life. So when I got to Wetumpka, that was the only sport I continued. Um, the two other, the baseball and the football head coach, which we won't name, um, I did not get along with. Uh, they're terrible people, if they happen to watch this. You are both very, very bad people. Um, I, couldn't the baseball, even, I couldn't even tell you who they were, honestly. Coach Molyneux is a baseball coach. Uh, <laughs> he told me one day that I would be printing license plates in prison by the time I was 20. And I still remember that, man. And I, I really just hate that guy. But um, so I wrestled with Coach Glass. Um, I was terrible. Um, not very good at it. So, but I had fun. And we all took drama or theater. I forget what it was called. I think it was called drama back then. Um, as like a free elective. Because it was like, it's Coach Glass. Let's just do it. Um, and I fell in love with improv. We did improv like every day. And I fell in love with it, man. Like it was just so natural to me. Like I had, I, I had the ability to just let go of reality and play that part for a couple minutes. And I loved it. Loved that class. Super stoked that he's doing it. Super stoked it's there. Um, in Hillbilly Bumfuck Wetumpka, it's like a breath of fresh air to have like a creative – an actual creative space, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like he has created that in his classroom. Um, and it's, it's very needed where other classes and teachers are really closed minded. Um, yeah. He, so very, you can tell he, he, he brings it all to class. Like oh, yeah. 
I just, you could tell how, like when he saw how much interest I had in it and how like serious I took it whenever I started writing those scenes, it was like, he just kind of took me in he was like, whatever you need, if you need help, I'll help you. I'll help you revise this. Like I, it's yours. You know, I want you to do what you want to do. So he gave me complete creative control, but he would just kind of give me tips. Yeah. And there were times, I think my senior year, I went up there and I performed a scene and it was a little bit uh, too blue for a high school uh, audience. It was about a guy who, um, God, I, it's been so long since I talked about this. Uh, it was about a guy who was going to ask for his, uh, his soon-to-be father-in-law's blessing. But when he gets over there and meets him, he finds out that his father-in-law is a nudist. So it's like a really awkward situation. And uh, there were a lot of like really like tongue in cheek kind of dirty jokes in there. Yeah. And he let me do it. You know, I got a lot of laughs for it. But, you know, like I said, it was a little bit too, you know, on the dirty side for 18, 17, 18 year olds. So we uh, so we did a play about a school shooting when I was in this class. And I remember the main role everybody wanted um the the shooter and i can't remember her name and i'm so sorry if she watches this but there was this girl who was very passionate she was like i want it and there was another guy who was like i want it too and they were like and i didn't care i was like whatever i'll be whoever um and she came to class the next monday and had cut her hair into a, a guy's haircut cut it off and she was like i want this and i know every line to it already and the whole class was just like, holy shit. <laughs> and, of course, the other guy was like, you got it, man. Like, it's all you now. Um, super cool play, though, man. I, I got to play the stepdad that got killed. Um, and I remember one day, like, it was just kind of bland. My part was real bland. And, and he, uh, Coach Glass knew I hated my stepdad. And he was like, you know, just act like him. And I was like, Okay. And it was it was killer, crushed it, loved it. Um, but fun class. Also, the when you said you like watched other comedians when you made your skit, there's a book that I have on my desk that you need to get. I don't know if you can read this; it'll probably be backwards. But it's called "Steal Like an Artist." I've heard that phrase. Um, and I, I think I actually screenshot it. It wasn't that long ago. I think it's still in my phone right now, but I will send you the Amazon link after this, but still like an artist, um, got, uh, suggested to me. I do graphic design as well. Um, and it's really just about like, it's about how like a lot of creative thoughts are not original and that, and that it's okay. Um, when, when I do a lot of graphic design, I find myself look like I have an idea and I'll look and I'll Google it and I'll see somebody else has already done it. And I'm like, fuck, because I want it to be my idea. Um, and the book just kind of teaches you like that. It's okay. Like that's okay. And it's okay to still use that idea. And it's even okay to steal ideas that they added to it. Um, and it just, it really just talks about that. It's a, I'm not, I'm not done with it yet, but it's a good read. So anybody in the creative field, I suggest that. Um, and it's like, I don't know, 10 bucks on Amazon. So I'm not a reader, um, which is why I'm not done with it. But whenever I get super bored, 
uh, it's my go-to. And it definitely made me feel more comfortable about um, stealing other people's ideas um, because that's, you know, repeated in history and things like that. It goes into all that, man. It's really cool. It really makes you feel better about yourself um, because everybody creative ends up stealing some part of an idea. You know? Yeah. Yeah. See I see something. it a lot. I see it a lot in stand up. I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, yeah. as far as like, you know, coming up with, you know, jokes and trying to stay original, like the last thing anybody wants to do is get accused of joke thievery. Right. You know, a lot of people have completely ruined their careers with just allegations of joke thievery. I mean, a classic example is Carlos Mencia. Carlos Mencia was. I mean, he was huge. He was he was right around the Dane Cook era. And, um, you know, him and Dane Cook at the time, they were like some of the biggest acts in comedy. You know, Carlos Mencia had his own TV show, and he was doing arenas and things like that. And, you know, he got called out at the comedy store in L.A. by Joe Rogan. And uh, it completely destroyed his career. So you know, it's been, it's happened before where people were accused of, you know, joke thievery, but now with the whole technology wave, if I go up and, you know, do a, a bit and, you know, two years from now, if I hear those jokes on Conan O'Brien, well, now I have a video with a timestamp that says, no, I've, somebody's stolen this from me. And, you know, so a lot of people are real careful about it now, but, you know, coming up with ideas and stuff, it's like you said, you don't want to, you don't want to completely copy somebody's stuff, but like coming out of this quarantine thing, everybody's going to have jokes about the coronavirus. And I know that out already because that's what is going on right now. So I've done just about everything I can to not write any jokes about the coronavirus. Yeah. Because I know it's just people are going to beat that to death in the comedy clubs. I'm going to go as soon as this is all over, I'm going to go to the comedy club and you're going to sit and watch three or four comedians before me and they're going to do five, six minutes about the coronavirus. But when I get up there and I start talking about medieval times or sweet tea or something, it's going to be a breath of fresh air. So that's the kind of stuff that I try to look at. Like, what can I talk about that other people won't talk about? Right. But speaking of books, um, if you like that, I'll definitely look that up. I appreciate you showing that to me. But um, there's one that I picked up a couple of months ago from, I think it was Barnes & Noble. And uh, it was referred to me by another comedian. It's called The War of Art. And it's written by Stephen Pressfield. I, I wish I had it with me. I'd show you what the cover looks like. But it's called The War of Art. And... Uh, that book has helped me so much since reading it. It's really short. It's only about 160 pages, but it, one of the main things that it talks about is for people that are creative or, you know, when they work in a field that is basically commission based where it's all based off of the work that you put in, such as, you know, being a graphic designer or even a stand up comedian, it boils down to, sitting down and doing the work and all the outside forces that push against that. He calls it resistance in the book. So like 
whenever you get home from a day of work and you've been planning on sitting down and, you know, coming up with a new design and you've had it in your head for a while and that, you know, feeling of, oh, well, I think I'm just going to play the PlayStation for a bit. And then that, you know, one match on Call of Duty turns into five matches or 10 matches. And before you know it, it's two o'clock in the morning. You're like, oh, I'll just do it tomorrow. That's resistance. That feeling of being too tired, that's resistance. And coming up with ways to beat that every day, like as soon as I read it, I started applying it to my life and I'd be like, okay, I got to wake up this morning at five o'clock, got to get, you know, a decent amount of exercise in. So I'd go for a run. I'd cross that off my list for the day. I'd go to work and I'd complete everything I needed to do for work that day. Cross that off the list. Well, now it's, you know, four o'clock, I get home. And I sit and I eat dinner with my family and I hang out with them for a bit. You know, that gets crossed off the list. And then as long as I go to the comedy club, sit there, wait my turn, get up and do five, ten minutes, however long I'm going to do, and I make that drive back home, I cross that off the list. Once everything on the list that I wrote down originally has been completed for the day, that is beating resistance. Right. So that's a very watered down version of that, but just that feeling of, okay, I finished what I said I was going to do. That's so underplayed. Like I'm sure you feel the same way whenever you come up with a new design or something like that. It, it's just, it's yeah. mind blowing how good it feels to like, Oh, okay. I finished it. I, um, you know? Yeah, I get I get asked a lot to do designs, and I have grown to hate graphic design. I hate it. Um, I started it because I wanted to do mintish designs myself. I didn't want to ask people. I didn't want to keep showing people drawings. But now I hate it, man. Like it's. I want to help people, and I have people all the time. Can you make me a logo? Can you make me album artwork? And I want to, I want to help you, but like, there's a lot of different situations that are annoying. You know, people will say, just do what you want. And I'll say, well, do you have an idea? No, just do what you want. And then I do what I want. And they're like, well, could we do this? Yeah, they don't like that. And I'm like, well, you know, I just spent, you know, three hours making you what I wanted to make you. So where are we at now? Because I was originally doing you a favor. You know, and we, we didn't discuss money here. Like, I'm doing you a favor because I like you, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then, it, you know, it ends up being a whole process. And I don't like to charge people because I like to help people. Um, and then it, but it's like now you've taken up seven hours of my day and I'm getting nothing from it. Yep. So, and, you know, credit in my world it, it is kind of nothing because, you know, I don't want more people to hit me up. So, I'm not getting exposure. I'm not, you know, the, the opportunity cost there is, is nothing. So, or everything, I guess it would be. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I have that feeling of resistance where people are like, can you make me this album artwork? It needs to be done by Friday. I'm like, yeah. And the worst thing you could do is tell me when it needs to be done because if yep. it's due Friday, I'm doing it Thursday night. Like, or Friday morning, like let's, you know, so I do have the resistance, the video games, uh, 
anything, you know, especially since I don't like it. I'm like, I'll do anything before I do this design. Like, do the dishes need to be done? Because I'll do those real quick. Like, yep, I'm the same I, way. Before I sit down and, and do this. Um, so I think noticing the resistance is, is definitely a big part. You know, noticing your enemy is, um, is a good thing. Recognizing it. Yeah, I think you'll definitely like that book, man. I have, I have a lot of stuff, but that was really the first one that I got that was dedicated just to art as a whole. Because he doesn't, the guy's a former uh, Marine, and he he he's written a lot of books, but I think that's probably one of his most popular books is The War of Art, and uh, it's good. I think my wife is actually reading it right now. But um, yeah, yeah definitely check that out. But um, so we talked about you know, your graphic design and pretty much, you know, the last couple of years after uh, high school. So how exactly did you get into music management? Um, so I, in college, when I moved back for the successful term, I worked at the apartment complex I lived at, which is Copper Beach in Auburn. I was a leasing agent and then I switched over to maintenance, uh, like leader, I guess. Um, I had a boss in maintenance, but I was the leader of the other people. Um, completely irrelevant to this story, but um, Clay started working in the office as leasing and I was doing maintenance. So we worked hand in hand all every day for about six months. And I had people over at my apartment to play cards and dominoes often. Um, I'd invite the work people and then my roommates would just kind of hang out. I had a guitar my grandfather bought me sitting in my living room because I was in college and that's cool decor, you know, whatever. Um, Clay came over to one of my little get togethers. We all got drunk. He said, I'm going to play this song about my ex-girlfriend. And I'm thinking, here we fucking go. Like we got another drunk kid's going to play Corey Smith because he wants to get laid. And this is going to be awful for everybody else in the room. Yeah. Except the one girl that thinks he's cute already like that's gonna giggle and tell him he's great so i was like here we go he starts playing this song and i listen and i was like holy shit like that's gonna make me like cry here in front of numerous people i was like this is amazing so i waited till i was sober and i was like hey dude uh the next day i was like can you play that song again because it was great and i think i was just shit-faced um so he played it and I was like, Oh, it's a hit. Like should be on the radio right now. Number one song. Um, let's record it. Let's put it out on Facebook. Let's like, let's do something with it, man. Cause I mean, like I have an entrepreneur mindset, so I'm not content with anything. I'm like, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. Like I'm down for anything, man. Like if somebody said they want to start a new company for fingernail clippers, I'm in, let's do it. Um, so it turns out, when he was 14, he was in a Christian band. He was the lead singer, writer, um, and they toured with, like, big Christian names. I don't know them, but, like, the Mercy Me guy, all those big people. Um, so he had a background in music, and I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Um, and I was like, let's record the song. He said no. His current girlfriend did not like the ex-girlfriend and did not want him singing songs about the ex-girlfriend. And did not want him in bars or getting attention from other females. So I was like, okay, well, you need to dump her 
and let's put this music out. Like, um, and he was, he was like, no. So anyways, a couple months went by, they broke up. He's like, all right, let's do this. So I got my camera, um, and I, I had graphic design, so I had to take photography and shit. So I had a camera. I was like, let's record it. Let's put it out. Um, it did really well. Everybody liked it. Um, I said, let me, let me book you a show and let's, let's perform it for people. Mitchell Tenpenny was our first show. We opened for him in Zydeco in Birmingham. He is, a lot of people don't know him, but he's probably 200,000 followers. Uh, he's getting there. Um, couple number ones, two or three on country radio. So he's rich. Um, that was our first show. Um, Clay got up there. I was nervous. How's this guy going to perform in front of people? Crushed it. Like, amazing. Um, from there, it was just, I started booking shit. Um, Eddie's Attic was our second thing. I just kept, I started reaching out to people and uh, talking and marketing him. Uh, and we went to Eddie's Attic, and the sound guy was like, so you're the manager? And I was like, no, I'm just a friend uh, helping him out. And he was like, well, you act like a manager. And we had just like a little joke going on all night. And at the end of the night, he was like, dude, you're the manager. Because he was like, who do I pay? And I was like, me. And he was like, yeah, you're the manager. Um, and I, we, me and Clay kind of looked at each other, and I was like, I don't know. And uh, so on the ride home, he was like, yeah, you're the manager, I guess. So that was my end. Um, I had no intentions of doing it. Uh, I had, You know, like, it just happened. Um, a lot of his friends growing up that he grew up with were really like upset at first and they thought like I was a snake and I was like trying to like use him to get something, um, which was not the case at all. I was like, look, I was just trying to help him out. Um, and I was kind of amazed that they knew him for so long and didn't see the potential. Uh, nobody else had tried to push him to do this. Um, so we started booking shows. Um, reaching out to people. I took over all of his social medias. Um, when I started, he had like 400 followers on Instagram. And I think we're at like 7,000 or 8,000 now. Um, so we're working on it. It might be 6,000. I don't know. Honestly, something like that. Uh, we've played hundreds of shows. Uh, we're doing it like two and a half years now. Uh, we played little shows to nobody. My senior year, I had an online science class, and I would go to shows on Thursday night uh, at a little bar in Auburn, Fat Daddy's. <laughs> Thursday night, they pay us 250 bucks to go play for three hours um, to nobody. Uh, so I would go and do my science homework online, and I'd be the only person in the crowd. Uh, and we've done the bigger shows where we opened for Riley Green and um, who else have been big ones? Riley Green's probably the biggest we've done, but it's been a good, fun ride. I learned a lot about music. I did not know shit before. I didn't know anything about lights. I didn't know anything. Uh, and I've learned how to run lights. I've learned how to run sound. I've learned how to set up everything. Um, that's it, I guess. If you have more specific questions, I could rant forever. So, I, I mean, I've, you know, I kind of scoped out your Instagram as well as uh, Clay's Instagram before all of this. And, you know, I 
I've seen obviously how much this whole quarantine pandemic shit has really affected not just, you know, pretty much entertainment as a whole. You know, you guys have had to cancel a lot of shows coming up. So I guess basically are you guys just kind of riding out the storm and planning on hitting the ground running as soon as everything kind of clears up or? Yeah. Um, we had our first tour. We started the Hold My Beer tour. Started in February, maybe, I think. Um, would still be going on right now. Uh, I had to cancel all those shows. That was tough. I was pretty stoked about our first official tour. Um, we had a couple dates that were selling out. It was cool. Um, we had uh, Statesboro in there twice. And the first time we played Statesboro, it sold out with like a 900-person capacity. Um, so that was awesome. Uh, we were supposed to be there yesterday. We were supposed to play Statesboro again and canceled that. Um, but yeah, uh, when it first started, I had, we had a St. Patrick's day parade in Savannah, Georgia, two days in a row. And when this first, it, it all started hitting and I was like, Hey, I need to cancel. And the bar owner was like, no this is not a serious, you know, thing. We're staying open. And I was like, dude, I'm looking at the numbers. I think it's serious. And you're asking me to come to a, you know, a whole weekend parade with thousands of people. I was like, I don't think we're doing it. Like straight up. I'm not, I don't, I don't think we're doing it. And he got really pissed, man. He was like, if you back out, that's fucked up. And um, I was like, sorry, like I'm not risking my whole band to go to this. Like, um and you don't want you know people to be like oh well i got sick at the clay baker concert you know clay barker barker my bad no but you you get what i'm saying you know like you don't that just puts negative light on him like everything's going good and now you have a bunch of people saying oh well he still held his concert and i got covid19 you know so now everybody's turning the attention negatively on him. So you, I feel like you made the right decision. It could look like we didn't take it serious. Um, and, and yeah, again, we could even get sick going to Savannah and then coming back to Nashville. Like you're asking a lot during a, a tough time. Um, but yeah, we canceled the whole tour. Uh, that was tough. We went from traveling five hours every weekend I mean, we don't have weekends off. Every weekend we're traveling five hours to a show um, to nothing, like nothing. So before we'd leave Thursday night, come back Sunday night, and then, you know, my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday were my weekends. It was my relaxed days. And now I'm relaxing every day. It's tough. It's boring as shit. I know what you mean. Um, (laughs) we We jumped on, like, the Facebook Live, Instagram Live train. And people were really supportive, made good money. Um, the first weekend, we made better money than doing the shows. But um, that was cool. Um, not cool for me because I don't make any money doing that. Um, I didn't take the percentage because I felt like I didn't really do anything. Um, so that's been tough. Um, we don't know what the future holds. We're just riding the wave on that. I personally predict 2021. Really? Um, yeah. I, I just don't see people wanting to go 
to crowded bars. I also – most of the bars we play in are not a franchise. They're just locally owned. Right. So who wants to pay this band X amount of dollars to come play when they're about to go out of business? Yeah. You know, yeah. let's throw some fucking auxiliary music on and people in the bar are going to have buy the same amount of drinks. Yeah. Like, let's save, you know, $1,500 because we need to. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to make booking a lot harder for a long time, uh, especially when we're not guaranteeing ticket sales. So we're not guaranteeing them extra money if we come. Um, so I think that's going to hurt us. And they're not, that's not going to be in people's budget for a while because these small businesses are hurting. Uh, yeah. And I don't think the crowd is going to want to show up for a while, man. If they open up society tomorrow – and you invite me to a concert, I'm not going. Like, yeah, yeah not I don't right care. Now. Like, I don't care if you're saying you can go out. You're not telling me that coronavirus is gone. So I'm going to keep doing what I was doing. And, you know, if I can go to work, cool. But yeah, that's pretty much what we've been on here is like, hey, if they say tomorrow that this shit opens up, we're just, we're going to hang back and just kind of see what happens. Yeah. You know, we might go and do like some of the normal stuff that we normally do, but you know, there's a amusement park that we love taking my daughter to here. And I was like, we're not going to run out and go to Belmont park. Yeah. You know, we might go to the beach because here, even the beaches are closed. Yeah. Like you can't even get on the beach and they'll take you to jail. So, you know, luckily we live like right outside. We have like our own little private beach, the neighborhood that we live in. So we've been, walking up and down that but other than that you know most of the really nice beaches that you can actually go out and like surf on and stuff like that you can't go to those and right. um you know just things like going to the grocery store and stuff like that you got to wear a mask every time you go into any of these places and you know kind of to touch on what you said in the whole comedy realm of things i mean it's, it's pretty much the same like I had a bunch of stuff lined up over the next couple of months. I had a uh, opportunity with a streaming service that I won't go into too much detail. I might talk to you later about that. But um, yeah, it was just, I had all this stuff lined up and it was really looking good. And when this whole thing happened, that's when it really like seemed real for me because my wife was worried about it months ago. Like she was like, this coronavirus is going to make its way over here. And I'm like, you're overreacting. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, similar. And then whenever we, me and a buddy, we went to the comedy store in La Jolla, uh, the March 11th for a show. And we went up there and it was great and everything. And then it was like the next day they started shutting down everything. And they were like, well, the comedy store to LA is going to stay open except we're just going to close the main room and the belly room. So the original room, which seats about 150 people, that's going to be the only room that we're doing shows out of. Cause at the time the governor of California said no more than 250 people. So I was like, okay. And then the comedy store in La Jolla is, I think they can only seat 200 people. So they were like, Hey, you know, we're staying open. It's no big deal. We're just going to sanitize everything real, real well. And, you know, if you have tickets, we had tickets to go see Polly Shore 
that weekend, me and my wife were going to go. And, um, we were like, yeah, everything's good. And then the very next day, uh, nope, sorry, we're closing. Uh, Polly Shore is going to reschedule his dates. I was like, great. So luckily the people at the comedy store are amazing and they refunded everybody that had tickets. And then it was just like clockwork. All the other comedy clubs in town were like, Hey, we're closing until this thing blows over. We're going to close until at least April 1st. And I was like, okay, so mark that off the list, mark this off. We can't do this. And I guess we'll just leave April for now. And then boom, Hey, we're, we're staying closed till at least April 30th. And now, you know, they've stretched it out to May 15th. So yeah, we, I think a lot of places are going to go out of business due to this. There was a lot of places that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but you know, at least out here, a lot of, comedy clubs were just hanging on by a thread to begin with and you know they would book some pretty good big name acts and that was what was keeping them in business but this whole time off that we've had I mean it's it's been tough and like I had tickets to go see Andrew Schultz in LA on the 11th of this month my buddy he bought them for me for Christmas but we were gonna go watch him shoot his special in LA and he's pushed that show all the way back to November. Yeah. And a lot of that is, to, so let's say society opens back up May 15th. Well, yeah, he was ready to shoot a special a month ago, but he hasn't been on stage in three months. He's got to work out those jokes and figure out what he wants to clip out and leave in and, Yes, you know, too. Yeah, he has to, he has to, because it really does, that is a big thing is, and I'm sure that even Clay could probably attest to this, like when you're playing on stage, you got to make sure you're hitting all those notes every single time. You want to be perfect every time you get up on that stage. Yeah. And for a comedian, it's pretty much the same way. And really the only thing that sharpens that blade is getting on stage. I can sit here and write in this garage for days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks, I could come up with an hour of material, but if I'm not trying it out on stage, I have no idea how good it actually is. Right. So that's really the way that I'm, you know, going against it. Luckily, you know, I'm in a position where I can still receive an income, you know, I'm still in the military. So that was one of the first things I said when all of this started was, this is the first time that I've been happy that I wasn't a professional comedian. Yeah. Because, you know, people like Dave Chappelle, Chris D'Elia, you know, all those Netflix comedians, those are like the top tier. Those guys are millionaires. They're going to be fine. With podcasts and things like that, you know, they're making money regardless of what's going on. Oh, yeah. But there's a lot of people who are, you know, they're professional comedians. They make a living just doing stand-up. They don't have another day job, but they are on the grind 24-7. They're doing cruises. They're doing corporate events. They're doing churches even. like They're doing everything they can, taking every little bit and piece that they can get their hands on just to make ends meet, but they're being a comedian, and those people are really struggling right now. Yeah, so, that's exactly where we're at. I mean... We don't have other jobs, you know. Um, Do you think um, – is he – I mean, I don't mean to get personal. I mean, if, you know, if there's something you can't answer, 
I understand, but is he working on new music? Is he like, Hey, this is an opportunity to like work on music for a new album or anything like that? Uh, yes and no, kind of. Um, so Clay has maybe 30, 40 originals. Um, so we basically just try those out at different shows, see how the crowd likes them. Um, and then keep the good ones. Uh, basically, he has enough material to put an album out. Um, but that's not really how the how it works. Uh, first of all, recording one song is low end, a thousand dollars, high end, you know, infinity. Like I don't even know if you went professional, but I mean, not professional. The low end is still professional, but like if you went Justin Bieber level, I don't know, but our songs cost about a thousand dollars to record per song. Um, and we're living show to show. So it's hard to keep putting those songs out, um, professionally. Um, so it's, it's all been on hold until we can afford it. Uh, yeah. we scraped up enough money to record a song a couple months ago, but it's a summer song. Um, so it's going to go out in May because it's summery. Um, and then we have a love song that's going to go out May 1st that we recently recorded. Um, so yes and no, you know, Clay's still writing. Uh, he writes every week. Uh, most of the time, you know, it's just hit or miss. And we try it out on crowd, so we don't have that right now. But so we, we're just going to keep putting out singles until we get enough traction uh, to where people want more music and we can put it out as a, an EP or, you know, a small album, whatever the case is. Uh, most of the time an album will come way later once he's pretty much famous. Um, I hear you. Yeah. And I mean, you, know, you get a record deal to fund that. And it makes sense to y'all are uh, marketing wise. pretty much the same layout as like a comedian would. Like I constantly get messages from people like, when are you going to put out a, another stand up video or when are you going to do this or that? And I'm like, occasionally I'll post like a little one minute video of me telling a joke or something. But for the most part, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to let that material go because if I put something out on YouTube, it's pretty much worthless at that point. Like, yeah. Okay. If it goes viral, then it wasn't worthless. But in reality, I don't see that happening. Now, if I hold it and wait for an opportunity and somebody's like, hey, could you open for me? I need somebody to come do 15 minutes with me in Anaheim this weekend. And you're going to make $1,500. Well, now I'm so happy I didn't burn those jokes on YouTube because now I know nobody really has ever heard them. Yeah. And that's really the element of surprise is pretty much everything with stand-up. Yeah. So it's interesting that you put it that way with music too. Yeah, it's um, it's different, but we've used this time to perfect how we're going to release things. Um, we're just kind of riding the wave, like you said earlier, man. We're just trying to figure it out day by day. Um, luckily, like our family is really helpful with like finances. Uh, <clears throat> they're helping us like stay afloat. Um, we had a little bit of money saved, um, so. It's definitely been tough. Uh, 
but we're hanging out, trying not to do any. The good thing about quarantine is you can't do anything expensive. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? You can, you can eat and sleep. Like, That's you can't go, it. you can't go to out to eat, to Outback or whatever the case is. Like, I bought a bag of pizza rolls for like $2 and they've lasted me like two weeks. Yeah. Like, that's cool. I think, um, I think one of the good things that will come from this whole quarantine is a surge in creativity. I feel like once everything, depending on when it is, is finally, you know, back to normal, I feel like you're going to see more original movies more original TV shows, more books, more music is going to, there's going to be this huge surge of creativity because everybody, all these creative people, regardless of what your outlet is, they were stuck inside for this period of time. So they had to do the nitty gritty, the stuff that, you know, most creative people don't really like to do. And that's actually sit down and create. It's fun showing off the final product. That's one of my big things is, I, I really hate sitting down and writing jokes. Right. But I love getting in front of people and performing them. You know, yeah. very rarely do I get up there without anything to say and just kind of wing it off the top of my head. I'm starting to try and get more comfortable doing that. But, you know, when I have like a good chunk of material and I know it and I'm like, oh, I'm a, this is about to rip this room apart and I go out there and it works exactly the way I plan for it to, there is not a better feeling. So well, there's a huge dopium release in that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're essentially high as hell when that happens. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, literally like that's a, that's something I learned from music is you hear like all these rock stars overdosing. Well, it's because they're trying to chase that high that they've had. Um, and I mean, I see it with play. Like he goes on that stage. There's, 900 people he's on top of the world dude like he's buzzing out of his mind um so i can only imagine dude like being being like uh kevin hart and doing a performance the high that he feels and then he has to go home like those people are going crazy right now like oh, yeah he's got to be losing his mind like because he's he's got to be chasing that high and if he doesn't have you know, a good way to continually, continuously get that high right now, then he could, could go down the drain. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Every he, creative aspect. He just, I mean, I don't know if you watched his little, his documentary he put on Netflix, but I mean, he took some time off before all of this after his car accident. Yeah. And he even said like, I just felt like I was moving so fast. Like I was doing so much stuff between movies and, doing stand-up dates and just flying all around the world. Like this car accident, as terrible as it was, it really gave me an opportunity to slow down. And now, you know, I'm sure he was ready to hit the road again. And, you know, he was at peace and now boom, Hey, coronavirus happened. And now you got to stay yeah. in the house again. Same thing happened with uh, Justin Bieber. Yeah. You know, he released that documentary series on YouTube and talking about his time off and how he wants to get back into it. And now you can't, Justin Bieber can't host a show for at least a year. You can't yeah. have that yeah. amount of crowd. You know, like, if, if he hosted a show right now, he's potentially killing 30,000 people. Like, realistically, killing 30,000 people. Um, so, that would suck. 
let me get your opinion on this because I, I got into this argument with a friend recently. So I worked for a radio station for a while whenever I uh, got out of high school. And mm. while I was there, um, Justin Bieber was a hit. I mean, he was on every single stop set we had. You couldn't go more than 15 minutes without hearing a Justin Bieber song. Right. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously he's one of the richest performers on the planet. Yeah. Do you feel like he lost his way to the point to where it's going to be too difficult for him to get, you know, obviously grow into a Justin Timberlake? Or do you think that that's still to come? Because hmm. I think the whole Justin, the argument I make of him being the next Justin Timberlake is, you know, Justin Timberlake, obviously, he was the lead singer of NSYNC. And he had all these really young fans, right? I feel like Justin Timberlake's music, really everything Justin Timberlake's done, because he is an actor as well. Right. It's almost like he started making his music more for the crowd that was growing up with him. Now, Justin Bieber has put out some bangers. Don't get me wrong. There's been a couple where I was like, oh, this is pretty good, even as an adult. But then I feel like at times he still puts out stuff that is, you know, 13, 14-year-old girls might want to listen to. I'm a huge Justin Bieber fan. Huge. Well, I figured you were. <laughs> uh, when my – okay, so let's start at the beginning of Justin Bieber's career. He got a lot of hate because he's making little, little girl songs. But if you look at the time frame, Justin Bieber is playing on the sidewalk for tips and he's playing three doors down uh like shit like that like he's playing real music um scooter braun comes to him and says like if somebody came to you and was like hey taylor i can make you a millionaire but you have to make jokes for 12 year olds sign me the fuck up yeah i'd be like, on that in a heartbeat and but what people don't realize is you have to look at the time frame. That happened when Britney Spears shaved her head. Yeah. That was the time frame. There was no other artist for that age group at the time. They were all gone. They had all gone crazy or drugs. There was nobody for that age group. Scooter Braun saw that open market and put Justin Bieber there. Hey, dude, I'll make you a millionaire. You got to make this music. So, fuck Yeah. He did it. He did great. Now he's getting older, and he's like, hey, I don't need the fans. I don't need the money. I'm going to make my own music, which is where we're hearing this weird shit now. Like yeah. uh, uh, Juicy, I think was the name of it. Yummy. Terrible. Yeah. My wife listens Terrible to it music. But that's, that's what he wants to make. Yeah. And, and he's earned that by doing the due diligence that he was offered at the time. And I feel like people give him a lot of hate when they would have done the same thing. Like, I feel like, me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. That's my point. I feel like his big growth into a Justin Timberlake, even Michael Jackson level superstar would have come had after his you know, run in with the law and, you know, all of his problems with drugs and stuff. If he had come out 
and he had said, Hey, we're going to do like an acoustic tour because I've seen some of his covers of other artists songs where it's just him and his guitar player sitting on stage. And I feel like that is the magic right there because he can sing his ass off. Oh yeah. I think if he just got, if he got away from some of these, you know, pop hits and him trying to be, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm on the pop station and stuff. Maybe that's where the money is. But I feel like the people that are really into the music, they want to hear, they want to hear the set of pipes that that boy's got on him because the motherfucker can sing. Yeah, he's also very talented, man. He could play yeah. guitar, uh, piano, drums. You don't really see that that often. He can play them well. Um, the kid's a superstar, man. I think he's already up there on Michael Jackson's level. Uh, yeah. Once his younger crowd grows up, he's passing Michael Jackson. Easy. Like, I just want to hear. I just want to hear him come out with some shit that's like a classic. Yeah. Because. Yeah, there's been there's been a bunch of songs that I've really liked of his, but I mean to put him on a Michael Jackson level, like you got to think about albums like Thriller, you know, and how there is not a song on that whole album that is not a hit, and it's lasted generate. My daughter, she will get in the car and she's like, "Daddy, let's listen to Michael Jackson," and she's four oh. years old, you know, and I'll put on Thriller for her, and she loves it so. And she's never asked for Justin Bieber. Michael Jackson's a hit, but I don't know. I think Justin's going to grow into it. I really do. Um, I hope he does. I really do. It. I, the only thing is, like, with Michael Jackson, is it was real, more real music. Yeah. And that is timeless. Like, everybody can can enjoy that real music. Where, like, the pop and the electronic sounds and stuff. I don't feel like that goes as across the board for everybody um, to be like, Oh, I don't like this music, but it's good. Like, so I don't know, man. I, I believe in JB though. That's my boy. Hey, so, I hear you. Justin Timberlake I, is insane. Uh, have you watched the music video for say something with uh, Chris Stapleton? I, I think I've watched it once or twice. It's in an old hotel in Nashville that is closed down and it is recorded live. Like he is mic'd up singing in the music video. That's the recording that you're hearing. Super impressive. Need to watch it again. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna have to. That's super duper. Speaking of, how do you, what do you feel about Chris Stapleton? Amazing. Unreal. Yeah. I'm, Unreal. I'm right there with you. It, it's Unreal. Have you listened to his song live with John Mayer? I haven't, but I'm going to probably uh, as soon as this is over. Chris Stapleton, John Mayer, just YouTube is the first thing to pop up. Amazing. It's a cell phone footage, so it might scare you, but just listen. Like, amazing. If they yeah, release he, that song, it's an unbelievable. He's got a one-of-a-kind voice. I mean, it is absolutely mind-blowing how well he can sing. He's I mean, it's like – He's the type of artist I feel like he makes music that other people will try and emulate because he's just that good. Yeah. There's another guy I listen to. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name is Sean James. Mm-mm. He's uh he's a little bit more I wouldn't even really put him in the category of country. He's more like alternative rock. But um he's really good as well. Definitely go check him out. I think he actually there's a game that's coming out 
where he's got like the like the main song and he sang it and played it. He's really good. But well, yeah, um, Chris Day. I think I think he was actually supposed to be coming out here around like August or something. I don't know if they canceled it, but his tickets are just so expensive. But I told my wife, I was like, hey, if you really want to go. I'll take you to this if you'll take me to go see the weekend whenever he comes out here. Yeah. Because I, I love his music. Yeah. I think I've bought just about every single one of his albums. I can't I love a fucking weekend. I never really got into him. He's good, but never did it for me all the way. I don't I like R and B, man. I don't know what it is. I like a lot of different music. Like with country, it's normally the older stuff that I really like. Obviously, like Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, everybody likes them. Yeah. But a lot of like the 90s, the stuff that we grew up listening to, like in our parents' cars driving yeah. around, that's the stuff that I really like now. And if I'm at a bar and I hear that shit, oh, it's over with. <laughs> if I've been drinking, I'll be like, somebody put on Neon Moon. I think I did that on my birthday. And that was out here. And they were, I said, I was at a bar here. It's a country bar in San Diego called, uh, double deuce and they have like a mechanical bull and all types of shit and that's all they play is country music so i come in i'm sauced up and i go up to the dj and i'm like will you play neon moon and he was like yeah i got you and then i put in a couple more requests he was like you're from alabama aren't you and i was like how could you tell and he was like because of your music <laughs> collection hell yeah but hey man mind. we've been on here for about two hours um Damn. Yeah, uh, time flies, man. It was good catching up with you, dude. For sure, dude. We can uh, do a catch up later on in the year. Oh, yeah, again. sounds good. Um, cool. Yeah, man, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. For sure. I'll see you link that book. And I got Sean James on my other screen here. I'll give a listen. Okay. Um, All right, man. Hey, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later on. It was good catching up with you, man. See you, dog. Yep. See you. All right. So there you have it. Once again, thank you to Mitch Wallace for sitting down with me today. I really appreciated talking to you and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the future. If you are interested in being on this podcast, just reach out to me, DM me, hit me up on Instagram, hit me up on Facebook, hit me up on Twitter, or just you know, submit a review in the comments, anything. If you want to be on here, somehow reach out to me and I'll see if I can squeeze you into the schedule. Um, once again, I appreciate you guys listening. All the views, all the subscriptions, which if you haven't yet, go ahead and click that subscribe button. Uh, it really helps build this podcast and it makes it to where, you know, we can add things like new intro music or, you know, add lighting or just really whatever we can to make this podcast as good as it possibly can be. And like I've said before, you guys are the fuel that takes this fucking rocket straight to the moon. Okay. So once again, as I always say, I appreciate you guys listening and I will see you guys next week. Y'all take care.